Good morning, everybody. Uh, so today we are going to be looking at the uh, books of First and Second Chronicles. Uh, so if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, so over the last number of weeks, we've been, uh, you'll remember, we've been following the development uh, of God's plan of redemption through the Old Testament all the way up to Judah's exile into Babylon. Um, so last week, Wes took us through the book of Daniel. There we saw the prophet Daniel rejoicing that the end of the exile was near. Uh, and today we're going to uh, look, we arrive at a book that was written after the exile, when the people had returned to Jerusalem. And what we're going to find in this book, the, the book of Chronicles, is a kind of deliberate retelling uh, of the people's history, uh, reaching all the way back to the beginning with Adam and then focusing especially... Oh, we don't need pins. Gotcha. Or we need pins. Um, reaching all the way back to the beginning with Adam and then it's going to focus uh, especially on... Israel's monarchy. Um, so think of Chronicles kind of as a grand retrospective, helping Israel make sense of who they are now that the exile is over. Uh, a bit like uh, if you're, you go to a wedding and you see a slideshow of the happy couple, uh, and that slideshow starts all the way back with uh, the couple's cute little baby pictures, and then it ultimately leads up to their present life together. Uh, and all of that. So Chronicles is kind of like that slideshow looking back at Israel's story, uh, but it's also a preview, a foretaste of, of what's to come. Um, so let's pray and then we're going to jump we're going to jump into it. Father, we praise you um, for the history of your people. Uh, we praise you for the ways that it shows us uh, the preservation of your promises to us uh, throughout many generations. Um, so we just praise you this morning that you're a God who keeps promises, who covenants with, uh, with your people, and in spite of our unfaithfulness, uh, stays faithful to us. Um, Father, we pray as we look at the book of Chronicles this morning that you would uh, deepen our affection for you, deepen our allegiance to you, that you would uh, make us a humble people uh, who uh, are quick to uh, repent before you and draw near to you in confidence and faith. And we pray that you would help us uh, to see more clearly uh, how your scripture uh, points ultimately to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so like Samuel in, uh, in the book of Kings, First and Second Chronicles uh, were originally just one book, uh, and that's how we're going we're gonna to treat them today. So uh, we're just going to go through First and Second Chronicles, kind of treat it like, uh, like it's one book. The Hebrew name for the book uh, translates to the events of the days. Uh, so in many ways, it's a historical record. Uh, one of the early church fathers, Jerome, uh, called it the chronicle of Judah's history when he translated the Bible into Latin and the name uh, just kind of stuck. Uh, so we don't know who the actual chronicler is, the author of the book, uh, who assembled it. Some suggest it was Ezra the priest, uh, which we're going to look at, we're going to study that book next week, uh, but we ultimately don't know um, who the compiler of the Chronicles uh, is. Uh, but regardless of who the author was, uh, the historical context of when he wrote helps us understand the reason why he wrote. So context really is really important in understanding the book of Chronicles. Uh, so to get a sense of this context, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 9. Verses 1 to 2. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. <clears throat> so in chapter, or in second half of verse 1, it's, it says this. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. So based upon that past, that verse, are we during, are we in, or are we after the exile? After. We're after, right? Um, after 70 years, the people are now back. So though the books appear right after the books of, of First and Second Kings in our English Bibles, uh, Chronicles was intentionally placed at the very end of the Hebrew Old Testament when it was arranged, which means that 
these would have been the last books of the Old Testament for Jews at the time uh, of Jesus. And the book was probably written sometime between the end of the 6th century and the beginning uh, of the 4th century after Cyrus's decree uh, permitting the Jews uh, in exile to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, which is where the book of Chronicles is going to end. We'll look at that passage uh, a little bit later. And this, this is really important to appreciating the message of the book of Chronicles. So as you'll remember in past classes, the history of Israel has been one of hope and tragedy. Uh, hope in God's promises that one of David's sons would rise up and rule forever, uh, but tragedy in the fact that king after king after king failed to live up to God's righteous standards. Uh, so tragedy was uh, kind of seemed to, to win the day, uh, especially as the northern tribes of Israel uh, were exiled to Assyria in 722 BC, uh, never to return. Uh, and then as the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated by Babylon in 586 BC, uh, Jerusalem, the temple were destroyed and the people were exiled. Uh, but hope wasn't completely crushed. And that's one of the reoccurring themes that we've, we've kept seeing really in every book that we've studied uh, so far this semester. A remnant was preserved in Babylon, and David's line survived through, uh, through King Jeho Jehoiachin. Uh, Ezra uh, and Nehemiah, which we're going to study next week, uh, they complete the story by showing what happened uh, when the people finally returned to Jerusalem to rebuild uh, the temple and the city walls. Two really, really beautiful books that I'm looking forward to teaching next week with you guys. Um, so that's all the context, um, all the historical situational context. But before we dive um, into Chronicles, uh, we need to, to answer an important question that really gets to the purpose of the book. Why did the author uh, write this book? Why does the author retell a history that's already been told once in the Old Testament? If you've ever read Chronicles before, you, you probably see, you feel like you've read this before somewhere in the Bible. Uh, much of Chronicles overlaps with uh, the books of 2 Samuel uh, and 1st of 2 and 2 Kings. Um, so is this really just the, like the same old story in the Bible that we've heard all over, that we've heard before? Um, is the chronicler just kind of stealing old stories and like putting a new twist on it? Um, is he rehashing what's already gone before? Is it just redundant, cumbersome, repetitive, filling up, what, 50 to 60 chapters of the Bible? Um, and at times when we're reading Chronicles, it can certainly feel that way. Uh, especially when we're trying to slog through those genealogies uh, at the beginning of First Chronicles. Um, but if that's how we treat uh, the book of Chronicles, then we're going to miss the author's uh, aim for the book and the, the particular theological emphasis that he's trying to drive home uh, in the hearts of his people and in our hearts today. Um, so if remember that Kings was composed during the exile. Uh, so its main concern was to show that God didn't break his promise uh, when he allowed uh, the Israelites to enter into the exile. For the chronicler, though, the exile is over, uh, and his aim is to remind the people of faith that God still had a future for them. All right, so in Kings, during the exile, God didn't break his promises. Now, chronicles, exile's over. He's reminding his people of faith, uh, the people of faith that God still has a future for them. So there is some overlap with kings. Uh, we're going to hear that today. Um, uh, but though there's this overlap, uh, the author leaves out stories uh, that were prominent in kings, and he features content that kings lacks. Um, so he's got a different end in mind, a different agenda uh, with, uh, with this book. Same history, same people, same God, uh, but a different context with a different different emphasis. So think of it kind of like the Gospels uh, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, lots of over overlap, but each author has a kind of different purpose uh, for why he's writing. Same Savior they're pointing to, uh, but a different theological focus uh, that they're going to draw out. So what's the purpose of Chronicles? Well, whereas Kings is about why the people had to go into exile, 
Chronicles is about where the peop- their hope is to be now that they're back, now that they're back in the land. Um, so put yourselves. Is Israel's promise? Yeah, yeah. The promises that God has made to the people of Israel. Yeah. Um, so put yourselves in Israel's shoes for a moment. Right? You're part of this uh, community uh, that's returned to Jerusalem. And you've got some big questions uh, that you want answers to, right? Like, is, God, um, is God's promise of a Messiah still valid to us? Is that promise still intact? Uh, are we still his covenant people? Uh, does God still care about us? Uh, so the chronicler's purpose in retelling uh, this history to them is to answer those questions for them. Um, because things weren't exactly as the people kind of expected them to be uh, at this point in the story. So if you remember back to Daniel chapter 9 last week, um, the 70 years that we were talking about, uh, those 70 years are over, and so the exiles are now returning. Um, But the 70 weeks have just begun. The 77s that must pass until the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah, uh, begins his rule. And so while the physical exile is over, spiritual exile, uh, in a sense, still continues for the people. Uh, That's why when the people return to Jerusalem, uh, they're not yet enjoying all those new covenant promises and blessings that we read of uh, in places like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37. Um, So Chronicles is written telling the people that they are not to place their ultimate hope in their return to this land, their physical return to the land, but in God's greater fulfillment uh, of promises that are yet yet to come. So how does this work itself out in Chronicles? Well, um, let's look at um, just some, some big sections of, of the book. So we'll look at these, these genealogies um, in, in 1 Chronicles chapters 1 to 9. Um, let's just read all, all nine of those chapters. Does it sound like fun? And Mike can help us with the pronunciation of them, all these names there. Um, all right, so, so look, at, look at the first four, um, first Chronicles chapter 1, uh, 1 to 4 there. Um, and just look at some of the names that pop up right there at the beginning of this book. You've got Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, and if you allow your eyes to drift throughout the rest of uh, these genealogies, you're going to notice that these names go on for quite a long time in the book. Um, so nine full chapters of these things. Uh, and to our modern sensibilities, uh, these genealogies can feel really irrelevant, right? really redundant to us. Uh, and the prospect of ending up in First Chronicles during your personal devotions here uh, might not seem that very, very thrilling to you. Um, in fact, most people don't make it out of these first nine chapters uh, when they get to, to Chronicles in their Bible reading plans. Uh, that or they get to chapter one, they realize the first nine chapters are these genealogies and they skip to verse chapter 10. Um, I've probably been guilty of doing that a time or two. Um, but why do you think these genealogies are here? What's the value of these genealogies? Why do you think they're in the Bible? They're in God's inspired word. Why does God put these genealogies in there? Is he just testing our patience and our endurance? To tell us of Jesus' descendants. Okay. Yeah. Or us in this. Yep. Yeah. To tell us of where he is. Showing us that line. Yep. Any other thoughts on these genealogies? It's absolutely true, Amber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's good. And Jesus came from some from real people. Yeah. Just not a made up thing that just came out of nowhere. Yeah. And wasn't it important to the Jews to show you know that they belong? Mm-hmm. Yep. Any other thoughts? Because God cares about people very specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not just out there. He yeah. cares about everyone very specific. 
Yeah. And he's going to preserve his promises through specific particular people. Yeah. Um, so what, what, those are, that's all absolutely true. Those are all reasons that we should not just skim over or skip altogether the genealogies uh, when we come to, come to them in our Bible. Um, these genealogies in particular are going are gonna to zero in on uh, some unique, some unique folk, folk, focus points. Um, so the first one you're going to see there on your handout, there's the focus on promise. I don't know where my handout went. Is it there? So the focus on the line of promise. This is kind of getting on uh, what Amber uh, was hitting on there. So if you remember the context, we're going to see how, um, how fundamental these genealogies are to uh, the chronicler's purpose we just talked about. He's demonstrating that the, um, the, the post-exilic community, those, the community of people who have come after the exile, are God's chosen people, uh, just like the saints of old. Um, so that comes across in how the genealogies get structured. So who does the who does the chronicler start with right there in verse one? It's the first name we get. Adam. Adam. That's your easy question for today, guys. Um, starts all the way back at the beginning, uh, at the time of time with Adam, uh, and as he progresses through history, the chronicler always zeroes in on the line of promise. Um, so in chapter one. Verses 5 through 16, uh, there on the, right there in the first chapter of the book, um, he briefly mentions the two descendants of Noah who are not ancestors of Abraham. Um, but in verse 17, the account shifts to the line of Shem, uh, Noah's son who does lead to Abraham. Uh, and the same thing happens with Abraham's sons. The line of Ishmael, Ishmael uh, only goes for one generation, but then he focuses in on the line of Isaac, uh, beginning in 134, and then Isaac gets a lot of, uh, of airtime there. So the focus is clearly on the Abrahamic promises as promises that are still intact for the people of God, even after the exile. Um, so... I think what the chronicler is trying to show us here is that those promises are still intact. The promises still stand. Uh, second thing that they're going to focus on is on Judah and on the messianic, the messianic line. So look at chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 2. So what, uh, what are the names that are described there? Who are we talking about? You get 12 important names there in 2, 1 to 2. If you just look at them. 12 tribes of Israel, Israel, right? Um, So here, uh, in these 12 sons of Israel, uh, we're going to see that the record starts uh, with someone in particular in verse 3, Judah, (laughs) instead of the oldest. It's okay. I was just going to fight through it. So it focuses on Judah instead of the oldest son, Reuben. Uh, Now, why do you think the author would start there with Judah instead of Reuben in verse 3? What's significant about Judah? Yeah, yeah, because it's through Judah's line that we are supposed to be watching for this coming king uh, of David and beyond David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, So... David then is going to appear in chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, and then if you look over to chapter 3, you're going to see the list of David's sons start in chapter 3. And amazing, amazingly, uh, what we see in that is that David's royal lineage gets traced all the way, all the way through to the other side of the exile. Uh, and then in chapter 3, verse 19... Um, mentions a man named Zerubbabel, which is one of my favorite names in the Bible, uh, who most fun to say at least, uh, who is the Davidic, Davidic descendant governing Jerusalem after the town after the time of the exile. Um, so we'll see we'll see some more of him next week uh, in our study of Ezra, um, and it's through it's it's so it's really like as though the chronicler is. Uh, really can't wait for the end of the book uh, to, of, of Chronicles to say, hey, look, we're, 
we're back from exile and Yahweh's promises are still intact. They still stand for us. A king is still going to come to redeem us. That line of kings, it hasn't been broken. So even in the genealogies, we're getting, we're getting just a taste of that. The, uh, the author's just dropping those kind of breadcrumbs for us. Um, third thing that these genealogies focus on um, is really all of Israel. Focuses in on all of Israel. So if you move ahead to chapters 4 through 8, um, these contain the genealogies of some more of Jacob's sons. And the point here is to show uh, what happened to the north uh, because of their unfaithfulness. So unlike those who returned to Jerusalem, the northern tribes of Israel, uh, they were lost in exile. Um, but turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 1. And there you, uh, we hear this, this kind of summary statement. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. That phrase there that we see in 9.1, all Israel, uh, is one that the author repeats dozens of times throughout, throughout the book. Uh, now, he's mainly concerned with Judah, right? We just saw that. But his inclusion of most of the northern tribes here uh, in 4 through 8 uh, and his emphasis on all Israel, it tells us something, uh, something pretty unique. Uh, it tells us that the spiritual core of the people isn't found in the national identity of the southern kingdom, but in the promises that Yahweh made to David. Uh, those promises for anyone uh, in Judah or Israel who would repent, believe, and obey God's word. All right, so all of Israel, though we're zeroing in uh, on Judah in the book, all of Israel is still within the scope of the author. Um, and then one final point on these genealogies, um, because this is a, a unique genre of literature and scripture, uh, it often can get misinterpreted by us. Um, so, for example, um, some folks might argue that if you pray the same prayer Jabez prayed in 1 Chronicles um, chapter 4, 9 to 10, um, then you're going to be blessed the same way he did. So go ahead and flip there. 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Go backwards a few chapters. 1 Chronicles 4, chapters 9 to 10. Uh, they say this. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Um, so why, in what ways do we need to be careful uh, with that prayer when we pick it up and, and apply it too quickly to us? Can we make his prayer our prayer? What do you think? Yeah. But we could pray that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can pray it, but not be disappointed when we don't. Because we don't. Okay, so there's there's really no expectation that we that God will answer that prayer for us the same way that He answered it for Jabez. Why? Let me take that. Go one step further. I have answers here for you, but I want to just see if we can do it together as a class. Yeah, so con remember, con our context here is really, really important. Um, so it's, it can be kind of troubling, even dangerous for us to interpret this prayer of Jabez as if we're going to get blessed the same way that he did. Um, because one, it brushes aside the differences between the way that God uh, worked in the nation of Israel uh, and the ways he's working in his church today. Um, and then second, 
uh, like Wes said, it really just brushes past the author's main intent in including the material. Um, the main point here is that the people are still connected to God's promises and that David's line is still intact. Um, so to be valid, um, any, any of our readings, any secondary point that we might draw has to line up with the author's main, main point, the reason he put it there. So we shouldn't view Jabez's prayer as a mantra to uh, recite in order to gain health and wealth. Instead, we should read this prayer in light of uh, the Chronicles' hope for the restoration of God's people despite their struggles, uh, which we, uh, we have ourselves in view now in that too. Um, but we don't expect uh, God to answer this prayer and to enlarge our borders in a physical sense. Um, so that's, those are the genealogies, right? Chapters 1 to 9, uh, they're not a section of the Bible we should just skip. As we can see, uh, the, the author's doing some very intentional things there. Um, second part of, uh, of the book uh, really gets broken down into 1 Chronicles 10 through 2 Chronicles 9. Um, so you can see that, that on your handouts uh, there. And, uh, and here we're going to see kind of the broad heading of a united monarchy, a united mon monarchy, the messianic hope of, of God's post-exilic people. Um, and this is going to, it's really going to focus in on the united monarchy under David and under Solomon. So turn to 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 to 13. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, in a spiritual sense, I think we can praise God that we're kind of, we're already uh, experiencing that victory uh, and that kind of blessing in Christ. And yet we haven't, we haven't yet fully tasted the, uh, the fullness or the fulfillment of that. So I think there's a sense in which the prayer of Jabez, um, yeah, in a spiritual sense, we're praising God for the fulfillment of that promise in Christ, and yet we're also still longing uh, for our full experience of it uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a good question. Um, yeah, okay, so first, first Corinthians, or first Corinthians, first Chronicles 17, um, verses 11 to 13. Here we're gonna see uh, the reason why David in, per, in particular is gonna feature so prominently uh, in the book. So God says to David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me uh, a son. So in this passage, God makes a covenant with David. One of David's sons will build a house, a temple for God, but God himself uh, will build a house for David, a dynasty from which will come an eternal king. So those words probably sound pretty familiar to you from uh, our study in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, so, and it's this promise that the chronicler really wants to impress upon his readers and upon us. Uh, and we can see how he's going to do that in two important ways that the, the book of Chronicles differs from the account of David and Solomon and Samuel and Kings. And the first difference, uh, unlike Samuel and Kings, Chronicles is going to present a vision of what the Messiah will be like by highlighting the positive aspects of David and Solomon. So you can, I think that's on the top of your second page, positive account. Um, so, so that's where we are in your handout. Um, so he's, he's going to present a vision of what the Messiah is going to be like by highlighting the positive aspects of David and Solomon. So one example of what I mean, turn, turn back to 2 Samuel. Turn back to 2 Samuel. So just three, chapter, or three books before Chronicles. We'll kind of compare 
2 Samuel Chronicles here. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. So in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. All right, now, where does this story end up? What's not not so good, right? Not so good. It, it does end with a divided kingdom. Even more immediate than that, though. Adultery and murder, right? So not the not the most positive picture of David. So Second Samuel is reminding us that David was was far from a perfect king. He was a great king, uh, but he wasn't the king that the people were ultimately waiting for. So now turn back to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. Some of this is going to sound familiar to what we just read. In the spring of the, of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. All right, so pretty different account, pretty different reading here. So what's going on? Is the author just whitewashing history? Is this, is this just revisionist history at its worst? perhaps, at its best, maybe. Um, nothing here about adultery and murder. So is this an inaccurate portrait of David? No. I don't think so. In Samuel, David gets exposed as a sinner. Um, but in Chronicles, uh, he's wearing a crown of victory. And I think what the author's trying to draw out for us uh, is that David in Chronicles is kind of held up or described for us as a king par excellence, right? He's, uh, he's, he's trying to present a positive picture of David uh, so, that, uh, so that we can have a foretaste or look forward to uh, the, the king to come. So he's got a different agenda. By portraying David in an overwhelmingly positive light, he's painting a picture of the sort of king uh, that the people were to be hoping and waiting for. Um, but it's not, it's not as if, uh, and it's important to remember that it's not as if the chronicler just ignores some of David's faults either. That's right. Uh, and it's important that even um, David's uh, error, his sin, and counting uh, the troops against God's will in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 is recorded. So it's not as if he's just whitewashing David's history and presenting this like perfect uh, king to us, right? He's, he's still showing that David has faults, but overwhelmingly, he's wanting to kind of give us a foretaste, I think, of that perfect, morally righteous, good king to come. Um, same thing when we get to Solomon. So his sin of idolatry uh, which we read about in 1 Kings chapter 11, just doesn't show up in Chronicles. Uh, it's notab notably absent. Um, the chronicler describes these two kings of the past, uh, David and Solomon, in such a way as to give a preview of the king of the future. So these positive accounts, uh, overwhelmingly positive accounts, point us forward. Uh, presenting a vision of what the true Messiah will be like, a preview of his own moral goodness and righteousness. So for us today, when we're reading these accounts of David and Solomon in Chronicles in particular, we can marvel at how both of these guys teach us so much about Jesus. Um, Jesus is the king who rules in justice. Jesus is the warrior who brings us victory over sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is the shepherd 
of our hearts, uh, who leads us to worship and pray to God. Jesus is the owner of all wealth, riches, uh, and splendor, and he's the supreme wisdom uh, of God. So as we're reading, as you read about David and Solomon in this book, uh, delight not in David and Solomon, but in the king that they're leading us to, the greatest, the greatest king of all. All right. Do what? What chapter, or what? Right after that, verse 3. Oh, verse 3, yeah. Um, I do not know. I don't know, but I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah. 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 And he saw, yeah. Each other out. He saw a dog. No, no not each other. Yeah. I think they're building stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One of the Texas chainsaw massacre. Um all right, so the second the second difference that we're gonna see um is uh is unlike in King's Chronicles, in Chronicles, the accounts of David and Solomon, they're gonna revolve around the temple of God. So the temple really, really gets a lot of attention in, uh, in the book of Chronicles. So in 1 Kings 5.7, you don't have to flip there. I'll just read it to you. Uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, of Tyre, praises God for Solomon's wisdom. And he says this, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. So in 1 Kings, why does Solomon, what's Solomon going to do with his wisdom? What's the purpose? To rule, right? It's the wisdom's there for ruling. In Chronicles, um, 2 Chronicles, so you can flip over to 2 Chronicles now. Um, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 12. Hiram again gets quoted. But listen to how, how this is different. Second Chronicles 2.12 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So in that verse, what's the wisdom being used for? Building a temple. Right, so in Kings, wisdom is about ruling. Now um, we are wisdom. Solomon's wisdom is about this temple, and this gets reinforced as we read uh, the rest of Chronicles. And you can't help but notice how much attention the temple is going to receive. So if you just scan your finger um, along First uh, Chronicles, chapter twenty-two to chapter twenty-six. We're not going to read these, but if you just look at the headings there, uh, you can see uh, the amount of space that gets given to David's preparations for the, the temple that Solomon would build. Um, so if you just flip through those, look at the headings, headings there, you see that the temple is going to get a lot of attention. Um, from the organization of the priests to the assignments of the musicians and the gatekeepers, and then if you looked at 1 Chronicles 28 to 29, you see some more headings there that give attention to uh, the temple and its preparations. And then in 2 Chronicles uh, 3, chapters 3 to 7, Solomon's building the temple. The temple's getting prepared to be built. The temple gets furnished. The ark is brought into the temple. Uh, there's a prayer of dedication to the temple. Uh, so lots of airtime air for the temple. Now, why this focus on the temple? It's not to get the people to be hoping in a mere building. Right? After all, Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 uh, admits that God doesn't even need a physical place really to dwell. So I, I think all of this attention to the temple is there to remind us that in order to enjoy a reconciled relationship with God, uh, the returning exiles must respond in repentance and faith. 
Um, so that's one of the main, main themes that we hear throughout the Chronicles. And I think that's what the temple uh, is meant to represent. The chronicler focuses on the temple because the temple, uh, the place where those atonement sacrifices were made, uh, represents God's willingness to forgive all who seek him with a repentant heart. Uh, and, that, and the means by that uh, is, the, is by which God's people can dwell with him forever. Um, so in Second Chronicles chapter 6, let's listen to some of this prayer. Um, Second Chronicles chapter 6, verses 24 to 25. If your people, Israel, are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again into the land that you gave to them and to their fathers. So the temple there is, is uh, it's about how we are to approach God, about how uh, the people of God were to approach to him, approach him humbly, pleading for forgiveness. And this is, uh, this is the approach to God that these returning exiles needed. All right, third, third, uh, third section there, Second Chronicles. How are we doing on time? Second Chronicles chapter 10 Verses 36, um, here we're going to really, uh, really start to explore the kings of Judah. Uh, and here we're going to see a lot of examples of rebellion and repentance. Um, the rest of Chronicles gives a record of the kings of Judah uh, and is going to present their uh, descent into sin, division, and then finally exile. Um, and to understand the significance of this final section of the story, uh, we need to look at a, cru- a crucial passage in Second Chronicles chapter 7, um, verses 13 to 15. So go ahead and turn there. Second Chronicles 7, 13 to 15. Um, so Solomon's just dedicated the temple to God, and now God is going to appear to Solomon and speak. Uh, this happens in Kings 2, uh, but the chronicler includes something God says that's absent from kings. So, uh, and as we've already seen, that's a good sign uh, that the chronicler is highlighting something special, that he's really wanting to draw our attention to something. Um, so here's what, what God says in chapter 7, uh, verses 13 to 15. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their land or forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. So Solomon's prayer in Kings highlights that the downfall of the nation is merely the working out of the Deuteronomy curses, uh, which we've talked about uh, multiple times throughout the semester. Um, again, hoping in God's mercy, uh, of course, but uh, the, the downfall, the sin of the nation um, is the working out of the Deuteronomy curses. But God's words here in Chronicles and the cor- that corresponding section show a focus on the plea for the repentance of the people. Uh, in that sense, verse 14, I think, is really kind of like the theme verse of, of the whole book. And and in many ways, chapter six and seven of Second Chronicles are going to like function as like the theological heart of the whole book itself, um, with seven fourteen kind of as the white hot center of the thing. Um, and we're going to see how that verse just kind of gets shot through the rest of of Chronicles, um, because in, in chapters ten through thirty six of Second Chronicles, nineteen different kings get covered. Um, from Rehoboam all the way to Zedekiah. And all of them, the chronicler is kind of, he's evaluating how they live up to 714. Um, do they humbly seek God and turn from sin? Or are they going to stubbornly rebel, serve idols, uh, and just kind of uh, wallow in their pride and rebellion? Um, so this verse, 714, I think is real, really important for us in how we read 
um, the rest of the book. And it establishes an important concept uh, that the chronicler wanted to communicate to the people. And it's really this idea of immediate retribution or restoration. Immediate retribution or restoration. So you might imagine that, uh, that since so many generations were sinful and wicked before the people went into the exile, that these returning exiles are thinking like, hey, we can do whatever we want. Uh, God's not going to punish us right away. Uh, he, he's, he's patient with us, right? Um, and that complacency was a real danger. But the, the author of Chronicles, he's fighting against that mindset and trying to push it, uh, push it out of the minds of his people. So throughout this section, he points out how when the kings and the people sinned, uh, they, experiences, they experience the consequences of their sin right then uh, in their own generation. Um, but when the kings and the people obeyed and they sought God, um, like this, like verse uh, four, 7, uh, 14 instructs them to, then God heard them from heaven, uh, forgave their sin, healed their land. Um, that's the idea of immediate retribution, restoration that we're, we're going to see throughout the book. Um, immediate retribution, where God swiftly uh, brought judgment upon Judah's rulers, rulers for their sin, but also immediate restoration, where humble repentance prompt, prompted divine mercy uh, and gracious restoration. We're going to look at some examples of that in just a second. Um, but because 714, I think, is such an important verse, um, it's also a terribly misapplied verse today. Uh, really, really gets misapplied today as well. Um, it's a verse that's given to uh, God's national people, Israel, uh, the people who were set aside by God to display his character and give birth to his Messiah. Um, but often we hear, what are some of the ways that we hear this verse get pick up, picked up and applied today? Wes, you're smirking. Yeah, America, right? Um, so, and you're often going to hear folks kind of pick up this verse uh, and apply it to the nation of America. Um, but that, I think that kind of misapplication of the verse, kind of just what it's doing is like ripping that verse kind of painfully out of its original context. Uh, now, much like with the prayer of Jabez, what's, what's kind of the danger in doing that? Any thoughts on that? Um, unrealistic expectations. Yeah. Absolutely. Always goes back to context, context, context. Right. Context, context is so critical uh, when we're reading our Bibles. Right? And if we just ignore context, that's when misapplication happens. That's when we start doing dangerous things uh, with our Bible. Um, so America is great, but America is not the chosen land of God, right? And context would remind us of that. It, it carries none of the redemptive historical significance uh, that the ancient land of Israel did. Um, so when the Messiah came, God concluded his work of a special people in a special um, physical land. So this particular promise to heal their land thus no longer really applies directly to any place or nation. But there is an important pattern, an important pattern that I think the author is laying down for us. And that pattern is one of repentance and blessing that we see here. And that's the pattern that endures through this. Um, it instructs us as God's people to continually turn, continuously turn from our sin and to seek the Lord. And if we do, then God will bless us. Uh, not in a material sense, but in a spiritual sense, Amen. right? It's teaching us to see the eternal spiritual benefits of faith and repentance in God, which is far greater uh, than any physical blessing uh, of land. Um, so I, I think that's what we've just got to, we've got to keep that in context uh, um, to rightly understand that how that verse applies to us today and then how to read uh, the book of Chronicles. Okay, so with the principle of immediate retribution, restoration, now kind of fixed in our minds, immediate judgment when there's rebellion and sin, 
uh, immediate blessing when there's repentance and faith. Um, let's look at some examples of how this principle is going to work itself out in this final section uh, of the book. So first, a few positive examples of immediate mercy. So look at, uh, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 17. Verses 9 to 10. Verses 9 to 10. Here, uh, King Jehoshaphat dispatches teachers of God's word, and this is what's recorded. And they, they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. So there you can see the idea of immediate blessing, right? The king and the people, they listen to God, they listen to his word, and then they enjoy peace. Uh, consider another good king, King Hezekiah. Uh, so the, near the end of his life, he sins. Um, but then look at, look at how he responds to his sins. Chapter 32, verses 25 and, and 26. Chapter 32, 25 and 26. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 26. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. All right, so there's another positive example of, of God's restoration in response to the humility of this king. Um, but unfortunately, Chronicle and Chronicles, bad outweighs the good. Um, so let's look at some of those examples of immediate judgment. Second um, Chronicles chapter two, uh, or sorry, Second Chronicles 12, one to two. Um, so there, flip back. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. So there you can see that pattern again. The nation abandons Yahweh and suffers immediate consequences. Um, and then sit, uh, another example, flip over to chapter 25. So go back towards the end of the book, 2 Chronicles 25-27. So here we get King Amaziah, and here's what's recorded about him. From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. And they sent after him to Lachish, and put him to death there. So as soon as he leaves the ways of God, uh, Amaziah is killed by his own people. Uh, and the book is really just filled with examples like this, both positive and the, uh, the mercy of God in response to humility, uh, and then negative, uh, where each generation gets judged for its own behavior. And if we fast forward to the end of the book, um, we're going to see where this, this, the bad examples, the disobedience leads the people. So flip to the last chapter of the book, 2 Chronicles 36. Verses 15 to 20. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. And I'll look down to verse 19. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels 
He took them into exile in Babylon. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. So, not ending. Uh, it's no the king, the uh, the conquering king uh, there, which would have been the king of the Chaldeans. Um, but by God's grace, that's not where Chronicles ends. All right. So in verses 22 and 23, last last verses of the whole book. Um, God moves a foreign king, Cyrus of Persia, to free the people to rebuild, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but that principle of immediate retribution still stands. If the people, like their fathers, they refuse to seek God, uh, then they're going to reap the bitter fruit of rebellion. Uh, and though they're back in the land, we see, we're going to see that their hearts are really no, uh, are no better than their ancestors. All right, same kind of uh, issue of sin that's still festering there. Um, so at the end of Chronicles, is there really just no hope for the people of God? No. Right? As we saw in the genealogies, um, David's seed is still alive. Uh, the focus on the temple reminds, us that, uh, reminds the people that God will build his house, uh, the house of David's son. And then as 2 Chronicles 21.7 says, uh, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Um, so Chronicles is getting us to Christ. It's, it's directly uh, leading us to, um, to him, the fulfillment of all God's promises. Um, he's, he's the king who's going to rescue his people from spiritual exile. He's the promised son of David and the true temple. Uh, and so the end of Chronicles is not, it's not a question mark of doubt about the people's future. Uh, it's not a question mark of doubt for our own future. Uh, it's a giant arrow pointing us to Christ, pointing us to the King of Kings, the one who ultimately will heal the land uh, of God's people in the most ultimate sense. Um, so there's some wonderful ways that we can apply this book uh, to our own hearts. Um, first, I would just encourage you not to read it as mere history. It can be real tempting for us to read Chronicles like it's just a historical record that doesn't really apply to us. Um, but we need to treasure it as a pointer to the Messiah. Because the last sentence is, is the, the, last, the, words, the word yeah. is the word. Yep, that's right. Um, so Chronicles should be bolstered. As we read it, it should bolster our trust in Christ as we um, all see all these promises preserved um, over centuries. Um, second, we need to read Chronicles uh, with sympathy um, with the post-exilic people of God. So just like them, we live in the middle of the already not yet, uh, waiting for Christ's return. Um, and yet in one, in one sense, the realities of, of Christ's blessings and promises, they already belong to us. Um, but in another sense, we're not yet fully experiencing them. Right? This kind of goes back to Sean's question earlier. Um, and this instructs us not to place our hope um, in how optimistic our circumstances may be right here, here and now. Um, our hope doesn't come from earthly rulers or great church leaders. Um, it, it comes from God's word of promise. Because it's um, really not an optimistic world we're living in. That's right. That's right. right. Pessimistic, ungodly world. That's right. Um, so, yeah, again, we're not putting our hopes in this world. And that's one of the main messages that the chronicler was trying to impart on his people. Um, third, we should, we should consider, let the chronicler's focus on immediate retribution direct us to the cross. Right? So... If we sinfully choose disobedience instead of God's ways, uh, we will reap what we sow. Uh, that's, that's one of the drumbeats of the book. Sin always has consequences. Uh, but praise God that if we're in Christ, if we're in Christ, Jesus has already absorbed uh, God's judgment uh, against us at the cross. Um, so knowing and savoring that will help us as we fight sin, flee sin, embrace a repentant life um, that right now. And then finally, uh, that emphasis on humility and prayer, uh, which we talked about throughout the book, that should cultivate that, those kinds of things in our own hearts now. Um, in several instances, we see the kings of Judah humble themselves, call upon the Lord in times of desperate need, and the Lord hears from heaven and intervenes on behalf of his people. 
Um, and in doing so, the author's showing the struggling Israelite community of his own day to humbly seek uh, the Lord in repentance and prayer and faith uh, because God is uh, the kind of God who hears those prayers and, uh, and then restores those who call upon his name. Um, I think the, the, the uh, emphasis on the temple is also giving us that kind of, of picture as well in, in the book. Any other um, ways that, as you've, you've read Chronicles over the years, um, you, you have applied this book to your own, your own heart? Any other ways we could apply it to our church life together? Just as we close, reflect on that. All right. It's a good book. It's a long book. We kind of had to power through some of that. Um, next week, we've got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, so working through those three books next Sunday. And then we'll shut it down on May 29th. With, we'll have completed the whole Old Testament in a year. So that's cool. Um, all right, let me pray for us. If you've got any questions about the book, anything I said, come find me. Father, we praise you for uh, your goodness to us. Uh, we praise you for a king like Jesus. Uh, we praise you that uh, we've seen him uh, this morning already, just in the book of Chronicles. God, we pray as we head to service now, God, that you would give us joyful hearts uh, at the fulfillment of that promise in him, and that we have a king who's living and interceding for us right now, and who lives, uh, who died, and now has been raised to life, uh, and he uh, he is sitting at your right hand right now, and we uh, can we are his people uh, by virtue of his blood and by faith in him. And so we praise you for Christ. Uh, give us hearts that are filled with joy now as we go to worship him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.